A content warning. This series deals with dark themes including child and domestic abuse, sexual assault, and content that is inappropriate for children. Please be advised. She said, Dad, if you love me, don't try to see me again. That really killed me. We don't get any calls down there. I hear rumors about it being a bad place. All the things they said, we can't act because we don't have the proofs. Now you got the proofs, so please go in there and have the children. I'm Tim Elliott. You're listening to Inside the Tribe. This is Episode 7, Undercover. In May 2010, Matt Klein and his 14-year-old daughter Tessa found themselves in Auckland, New Zealand, planning a very special operation. Yeah, we flew to Auckland, went to this little motel and kind of sat down, got a map out. I remember Dad looking at the map and being like, okay, so the house is here and talking about their family routine, like what they usually do in the day and what time will they be home, what time will they be alone, all these types of things. Very almost like a police officer or something trying to plan a raid. Matt and Tessa had come to New Zealand to help Mark get Rose and their children out of the cult. The aim was to stage an intervention to help Mark convince Rose and the kids to leave. But they had to tread carefully to get their timing just right. That would probably be the only chance that we got to speak to them alone without other members of the cult supervising, I guess. So I think we had the address and kind of their daily schedule and we just had to sit outside and either wait for them to come home or wait for uh, someone else to leave, maybe wait for like five-ish minutes just to be sure, and then we had to go, you know. It was like, this is our one chance. We have to go now. (laughs) They approached the house. Matt was worried that Rose might be wary of him, so he got Tessa to knock on the door while he stood behind her. I was someone who was not threatening, but also familiar. I had so much adrenaline running through me. I, it didn't quite hit me at the time how major that introduction was. So yeah, it was, it was a pretty, pretty weird thing to do. I remember Rose getting quite emotional when she saw me as well. Rose invited them in. Them being like, oh, we remember you from when you were a little girl. Like, how are you? Are you you doing well? Um, And me being like, yeah, I'm doing fairly well, you know? Going to school, doing ballet. Just kind of told them about my life. From a young age, I've been very good at uh, reading a room and just talking and staying pretty calm. I was there to do an intervention. Now, most people are really scared of interventions if you currently reside in a cult because they're made up to be these bad things where you get tied down and brainwashed into believing that your legitimate group you're in is actually a cult. So whenever we go in for an intervention, it's not to try and convince them that they are in a cult. It's just to be able to give them information so that they can see what sort of group they are in. So the way we do this is... We'll go in, we'll start a conversation and relax and whatever and bring up the word cult. And most people will agree that there are cults in the world. There's some classic cults like the Moonies or Scientology or groups like that, and they can easily identify those groups as cults. So once we've established that cults do actually exist, we can then go and look at another group and how, what their behaviour designates them as a cult. And so once you start being able to point out the mind control, the information control, the control of their time, you can then 
relate that to the group that they are currently in and allow them to come to the realisation that, hey, the group I'm in actually has a lot of characteristics as these other groups that I know are a cult. Then once you get that link happening, it's generally pretty easy for them to, you know, come to the realisation that the group they're in isn't legitimate and it is actually a cult and isn't good for them or their family. Rose, as I remember it, um, was was fairly battered by the 12 tribes and you've got to remember she hadn't seen a husband for like six months at this point nor her son and so yeah she, she was she was a fairly battered woman by the 12 tribes so she was fairly quiet um but but quite quite depressed but i could see a spark of hope in her eyes as well that maybe there was a, a way out that she didn't have to stay there and suffer what she was suffering so, yeah, I think that very quickly it sort of turned to, to hope. It was like someone hitting you on the head, like, with a bat. Uh, I was, what have I done? Like, what have I done all these years trying to bring up my children to be part of the holy, trying to be part of the special people that are going to bring back Yeshua, Jesus, you know, and then to realize my child could not wait to get the hell out of there and hated every minute of it. It was such a shock between what I believed and what the reality was. Uh, it, it just, uh, it kind of split my mind, kind of shattered my mind. Just the realization that uh, how much my son had suffered in there uh, and that the whole time I had done it with all the best intentions, but I actually had traumatized them and made him suffer so much. That night, they all went out to dinner together. So there was a water park nearby, so we probably grabbed some dinner at some point and went out to a water park where we were swimming and going on water slides and carrying on and just just being normal and laughing without this sense of guilt that uh, we shouldn't be wasting our time or money on frivolous activities which you know and it just you know just breaks the ice and just gives them a taste of life in the outside world and look, not only that, the kids really, really enjoyed it. Oh, look, I, I could see Rose really starting to open up and just enjoy the possibility of life on the outside of the 12 tribes. Yeah, and I remember going for a walk to um, one of the parks there in, in Auckland and Mark told me um, that uh, he didn't consider himself a member anymore, that he wanted to live. Rose told Mark that her life was with him and that she would also leave the group. So, yeah, so the next morning um, I went back to continue to try and, you know, just solidify all the information we'd been through the day before. And the eldest daughter was was still being very polite, but had obviously spoken to the, to the leaders and her boyfriend back in the 12 tribes. Um, and so I just sort of really laid out the reality for her. If she was to go back without the parents that... Her parents wouldn't be invited to the wedding. I wouldn't be allowed to come to the wedding. Um, and eventually she would cut them off. She wasn't very happy, my oldest daughter. Mm. She thought, oh, man, I'm going to the lake of fire. And the way I was, you know, and I was speaking bad about the leaders. She thought it was sacrilege because she was very turned to them or, you know, very getting brainwashed. And I remember coming towards her and just wanted to tell her, all I wanted to tell her is, look, you just got to follow your heart. And if your heart tells you that you shouldn't be um, in in the community, just follow your heart. You have to follow your heart. And she's so freaked out. She literally was moving away physically from me, hmm. like, like like I was going to pass her on some leprosy, which is the scene of unbelief. She's so freaked out. You could see in her eyes and she moved away from me and she walked to the other room. Straight away, she was on her phone, which I wish I had cut that phone, you know. They gave her a she phone so she could talk, yeah. Uh, was a, was a, yeah, she was talking on the phone with her boyfriend for a oh. whole hour, and they would have been talking about us, and you would have said, oh, don't right. listen to them. Satan's talking to you. He's trying to take you away from the community, from God and Yeshua. Yeah. And he would have been talking to the leaders. They would have been telling him what to say, and, and then she's just like, okay, all right. And then she looked at us like really different, something really changed. Her mind was made up. It was her choice. 
to um, go back. But really, if I was in the right state of mind, I would have just taken a passport and I wouldn't have let her back, actually fly back to Australia, to the community, to get married. In the years that followed, Mark and Rose did whatever they could to maintain contact with their daughter. For the first few years there, 2010, 2017, I did everything to be on good books and not say anything negative. A couple of times, she and Mark showed up at the farm in Picton, begging to see her, without success. One day in June 2013, Mark got desperate. So I went in and I arrived at Picton, and uh, not at the farm, they've got another cafe there. Yeah, so I went in there, I just went into the front counter, I said, they saw me and freaked out, and said, I want to see my daughter. And I, I was pretty full on. I was, I was putting on a bit of a hat. I was like, I want to see my daughter. You separate families. But I was more full on, you know. I was, and everyone was telling me, oh, go keep quiet, quiet. Oh, we're going to see if we can meet your daughter. You see, I want to see her now, you know. And, and so I was really loud, almost embarrassing. But anyway, uh, she came. She said, oh, can you, can you just wait outside, please, you know. And because all the people, they didn't want all these people to hear what I was, what I was saying. So she arrived with her husband. Mm. And I, I just gave her a letter and said, Look, I love you very much, dear. I hope there can be some uh, reconciliation one day. Yeah. She said, Dad, if you love me, don't try to see me again. That's right. Yeah, she's there. Yeah, that's right. That really killed me. Yeah. And he went by himself. Although I couldn't take it. Because last time I saw her, she had told me that she didn't want to see me again. And I was just, you know, bawling my eyes out. Just and that's the last impression I have of her, with her glazed look, you know, telling me, Mom, I don't want to see you again. Don't come and see me. Uh, what? You know, like when your own daughter tells you that. That's the last time I saw her, so it was July 2013. That's why after that, we thought, well, she doesn't want to see us. Not allowed to call her, not allowed to see her. What the heck? I'm just going to denounce these people. Mark asked Matt Klein if he knew anyone in the media they could talk to. Matt and I had previously worked together on a story about the tribes in 2008, and so Matt put Mark in touch with me. By 2013, when Mark approached me, I was doing investigations for Good Weekend, which is the Saturday magazine for the Sydney Morning Herald and the Age newspaper in Melbourne. The magazine runs long pieces, 5,000, even 6,000 words. And so it was the perfect place to tell Mark and Rose's story. I was there to expose the 12 tribes through a media platform which could help other people. That's what I thought of. Mm. Honestly, that's why I've done it in the first place. I was very embarrassed, but you know why? Because I was embarrassed that I joined the cult. Now I know what a cult is (laughs) and and how to recognise them. Uh, the love bombing is something really people need to uh, watch out for and uh, watch out for uh, when they get into your life. They try to rearrange the furniture in your head kind of thing, you know. But of course, I wasn't the only one looking into the tribes. Germany was quite good At the same time, a German documentary maker named Wolfram Koenig was launching his own investigation. And they worked with solar in the solar industry and they earned a lot of money. And because of this, Germany was very important for America because it brought a lot of money. At the time, Wolfram was working for the German TV network RTL, which was just starting to branch out into high-impact reporting and documentaries. When Wolfram, a father of two himself, heard of children being abused by a shadowy religious sect in Bavaria, he knew he'd found the right story. Jahrelang konnten oder wollten die Behörden nichts gegen das Martyrium ausrichten, obwohl bereits in der Presse darüber berichtet wurde. In Germany, smacking your children is illegal. People had tried to report the tribes for child abuse before. In 2012, German authorities questioned a number of children from the community, but they denied ever having been hit. Wolfram knew that in the tribes, the beatings took place behind closed doors, and so he saw no other option but to go undercover. In preparing to go into the community, Wolfram came up with a backstory 
but he borrowed heavily on his own past. He would enter as a single man whose romantic relationships had broken down and whose life was in limbo. Normally tall, slim and urbane, he now had to look like a drifter, so he skipped a few haircuts and stopped shaving. Yeah, I, I, how do you say? I become a beard? No, I get a beard? I get a beard. So it took me one and a half months to, uh, to lose my connection to my skin. <laughs> but then it was good because for me, it was necessary to play this role. That was part of my role. I needed it to, to think about myself. Now you're lost. Now you're wounded. And uh, yeah, it was working. <laughs> It was a disguise, like a kind of disguise. Yeah, maybe you changed the color of your hair, whatever. Maybe it was also not necessary for me, but it was a part of the becoming a member. The tribes were living in a beautiful old monastery near the village of Klosterzimmen in Bavaria. When Wolfram turned up, he was greeted warmly. He agreed to come back the following weekend and the weekend after that. Each time, he got the feeling that members were sizing him up and cross-checking his story. For me, it was necessary, for example, to drive for three hours from Cologne to there to become the other person, yeah, to, to get away the old life and to come into the new life, to, to find into my role and uh, to realize, okay, the old mobile phone is away and everything. And um, it was necessary to have the time to arrive inside, inside you. Throughout these visits, each a couple of days at a time, Wolfram wore spy glasses, which were able to film using a tiny camera in the frame. But his interactions with the members were limited. He hadn't been baptised yet, and so he didn't have full access to the community. He was only being shown the front of house, the Disney version of the tribes. He knew that any potential child abuse would be happening behind closed doors. After a time, he noticed that parents would quietly leave the dining areas at mealtimes or during ceremonies and take their children to a room down the hall. When the children were brought back, some were trying to hold back tears. Others would be holding their bums. Clearly, this was where the beatings took place. Wolfram then watched and waited until he had the right moment to sneak into the room. Working quickly... He hid two cameras in a light fixture on the ceiling. Several days later, he returned for the footage. I took the cameras and left the farm as fast as possible, not running, but as fast as possible without uh, yeah, being too suspicious. I hoped the, the videotapes were very precious, and uh, so I wanted to bring them. I wanted to save them and to take it away from there. Yeah, and so I drove five kilometers, and uh, in a little small road, I uh, uh, I stopped and put it into a into a computer. And the first film I saw was a four or five year old child, a little girl, and uh, it was punished by her mother. And you know, they came into the room. She said, drop down the clothes. And she said, oh, no, I don't want. And she said, you know why? Drop down the clothes. And then, because she was used to it, the little girl dropped down the clothes. And the mom said, uh, bend over. And the little girl was crying. She said, I don't want. And the mom said, bend over. It is necessary. Do what, what, what I say. And then slowly, the young girl did it. And then she was beating it uh, on the back. And of course, the young girl started to cry and uh, tried to get away. There was more. And then I realized that, um, that it was successful um, and uh, I had the proofs we needed, we were looking for. On the cameras, it was recorded that they were beating their children, not just one time, but many times. And when you then later talk to the former members of the 12 tribes, when you see how much they are damaged in their personality, how difficult for them it is to survive in our world because they are not used to it. I mean, if you're not used to survive in our world, it's already difficult. But if you have the experiences of the 12 tribes of punishment and the this uh, cruel things, then it is even more difficult. And with all these things in my head and in my heart, I stopped looking this video because 
I realized there were more scenes recorded and uh, I, I was touched so much and I didn't want to start crying in the car because I had to do a job and I wanted to go on. His next move was to show the people who could do something about it. So in Germany, you have a place when you when you realize that, for example, in a, in a family or in any, um, in any way a child is abused, uh, beaten or anything sexually abused, you can go to a kind of office and it's like, uh, like a, yeah, they take care. Let's say it's a social office or something. I, as a journalist, said to the, to the boss of this office, we have a problem. I would like to come to you and show you something. And he said, okay, uh, but what do you want to show? And I said, yeah, it's got to do something with the 12 tribes, but it is really um, important that I show this and I would like to record this. And he said, why do you want to record it? And I said, because it's a part of a documentary I'm doing. And um, I would like to know how you react if you see this. In the RTL documentary, Wolfram shows the footage of the beatings to the official. He, he was breathing two times and he said, this is horrible. I didn't expect it. This is pure. He was repeating two or three times how horrible it is. And, uh, and I asked him while it was recorded, um, what do you do now? Wolfram is also seen showing another government official some of the footage. Is this torture to you? He asks. She answers, yes. All the things they said, we can't act because we don't have the proofs. Now you got the proofs, so please go in there and help the children. Wolfram brought the evidence to a local judge to see if she would issue a warrant to raid the 12 tribes' property. The judge wanted to be convinced um, that everything, that, that she had the justification to start it. Yeah, and uh, so we were talking, she was asking me questions, and uh, I realized that also she was touched quite strongly because uh, she also saw the videos. The judge went ahead and issued a warrant, but it was going to be a big day. There were 150 people at the 12 tribes' property, including 40 children. And so the police asked for more officers to come from neighbouring villages. A couple of days later, the cops staged a dawn raid. About 40 children were taken out of the sect and uh, later on some of them went back because they were in the age of taking their own decisions. And then the authorities said, okay, now you are 15, 16 years old, you are still underage, but if you want to go back, we can't stop you. For the young children, they were given to, um, how do you say, to families taking care of them. And uh, the youngest one was a baby about eight months. So it was given to the new family. And um, there were twins about three and a half or four years, two young girls. And yeah, I remember all the children. And, and of course, the uh, 12 tribes were in the focus and they couldn't act as they did before. And they were in panic. They were in panic. They were trying to get into contact to America to find out what they should do, because this situation was not, <laughs> that was uh, not expected by them. And they, they tried everything to get back their children. The elders in Germany contacted the tribes in Hidden Night, asking for advice. From America, it was said, you don't say we don't beat them anymore. You can discuss about what beating means, but you have to go on with our rules and you have to do what we want. What we in America say, you have to do, you have to obey. So they said to the German court, it is a part of our education. It's not real beating. And then the court said, for us, it is beating. And so we take away the... Sorgerecht. Um, you are not longer responsible for your children. You're, now they are in the custody of the German government. The parents fought for two years to get custody of their kids. Some were successful, others weren't. The group itself remained at odds with the government. Several tribes members held a press conference in 2015, claiming that they were being persecuted by the state, forced, in effect, to leave their own country. They couldn't prove the allegations in the report. The tribes took the case to the High Court, but lost. In 2017, 
they left Germany altogether and moved the community to the Czech Republic, where child protection laws were not so strictly policed. But for some of them, for many of them, it came too late. Wolfram was gutted. He'd done his level best. He'd put himself on the line and got the footage. And now the cult was setting up shop just across the border. Then there were the former 12 tribes members who had placed their faith in him to make the cult accountable. Some of them became frustrated because they realised that the system was still working in other communities, in other countries, and that even in Germany, it was not seen as black and white, as good and evil as they hoped. As it happened, 2013 was a busy year for the tribes. Germany had proved to be a major headache, but there were other problems closer to home in the US, including at the headquarters in Hiddenite, where some horrific allegations had surfaced. Now the police were on the case with the backing of the FBI. Alexander County covers the small towns of Taylorsville, Statesville and Hiddenite. With barely 500 people, Hiddenite is your classic middle American one-horse town. Rural, flat, dry and conservative. There's one main street, a petrol station and a mechanic, plus a couple of dollar stores that sell discount clothing and groceries. The biggest landholder here is the 12 tribes, which has bought up almost an entire street where it has several homes and a visitor centre. Just around the corner, it owns a produce store, a cafe, and most prominently, the Yellow Deli. You ride by there, and like you said, you'll see people lined up, you know, go in to eat. Chris Bowman has been the county sheriff here for 13 years and a police officer for more than 40. He's dressed immaculately in a crisp white shirt, pinned to which is a silver star-shaped sheriff's badge. He's a big fan of merchandise and has a desk full of Alexander County Sheriff bumper stickers and Chris Bowman pens. Outsiders are a novelty here. Our producer spent some time talking to visitors, with the most common reaction being... What the fuck is an Aussie doing in Taylorsville? In April 2013... Bowman's office got a call from a woman claiming to be a member of the 12 tribes. She told police that there was a man being held in the tribe's compound in Hiddenite against his will. Several detectives went out to investigate. We spoke to one of them. A couple of times people were called and said they were kidnapped or held against their will, so we went down and interviewed them. The time you were talking about when we went down there, there was a warehouse, but it was also where people were staying, you know, so there's a lot of people staying there. The woman wanted to report child sexual abuse that was occurring at the compound, together with widespread drug use. She described how underage workers had been given LSD and meth in order to keep them working long hours. She said the drugs were being baked into ritual bread and fed to tribes members. They brought to light about what she was talking about putting stuff in the bars because they said they would go out and work all day long and they'd feed them these energy bars. The complaint also detailed drug runs to get heroin and meth. They just said it was drugs, meth or something like that, but nothing was ever substantiated or any charges were made, you know, anything like that. There's several um, child abuse stuff that's come up over the years, but nothing's ever been where there's a charge or anything. Just days later, Another former member came forward with more allegations. They described how orgies were taking place in the school building called The Cottage. For a couple's anniversary, they could apparently choose a person to take to the cottage to have sex with. According to this former member, the upper hierarchy, or the councilmen, could choose any woman they wanted, even if they were married. The former member went on to describe how he had been beaten and starved in a cellar after misbehaving. Meanwhile, members who were sick weren't treated medically. If they died, they were simply buried on one of the Hiddenite properties. 
They're real private. We have worked some deaths there, but, you know, they sort of handle their own problems, you know. The police interview notes mention a course called PRT, or Public Relations Training, where 12 tribes members were schooled on how to spot the cops and what to tell them if questioned. Apparently they were also shown pictures of local police officers. Bowman's office had called in the FBI, which began to compile a dossier of complaints from around the US dating back 30 years. There were accounts of kidnapping and of sheltering known criminals. Members were also said to have prayed for the death of people they considered to be enemies. Perhaps most eerie of all was the suspected murder of a former 12 Tribes member in 2010. The former member, a woman, had allegedly been sexually abused as a child in the community. Her therapist had reported the claims to authorities in 2009. The woman then confronted the Tribes herself. Less than a fortnight later, she died in a car crash. Key details, including locations, dates and names, have been redacted from the police report. Directly after meeting with cult leaders, this former member was in a car crash and was killed. Another former member opines that the car crash was not accidental, but was orchestrated by tribes members to prevent their accuser from propagating the claims of abuse and seeking civil compensation or criminal charges. Another former member advised that anyone who had spoken out against the cult in the past had had a similar, untimely, accidental death. Over a span of 30 years, out of the people that have publicly made the effort to take them to court, there's three or four that have been paid off behind the scenes and just go their own way. And then there's the people who tried to make a stand, a public court appearance and with the whole trial and the, the evidence and the, and the discovery the, according to the law, and none of them have ever made it past the discovery point alive. Bob and Judy Pardon heard of one particularly grisly incident. It was a woman who was somewhat rebellious. This was out in Missouri, I think it was. Yeah, this was back probably in the late 90s, early 2000s. Yeah, she wasn't real compliant, and she was in a car one day with a number of other individuals that hit head-on with a front-end loader. It's a bucket truck, you know, it's got the scoops up dirt, and it sheared off the top of the car, and she had she was beheaded. Oh, they because, really played that up. Because she wasn't um, compliant and submissive to in, in headship, she lost her head. There was also uh, uh, the guy that was a drunk, uh, got into a serious car accident and died. I was living in California, and a former member of the community had died in a car accident. He had actually been, I guess, tempted away from the community by a young woman. And the way the leaders presented it, it was like, okay, he gave in to temptation, and so he was no longer protected by God. So this is what will happen when you're no longer under our authority. There were more. Massachusetts State Police named Marcel Massey as the driver of the car that died in a rear-end collision with an 18-wheeler that took place in Hopkinton, Massachusetts on Tuesday, September 8, 2015. Police with details of the accident said that the Jetta he was driving struck the rear of a tractor trailer on Interstate 495. Paramedics took him to the hospital where he died. Marcel Massey was a senior member of the tribes in Massachusetts. Many 12 tribes' businesses and properties were held in his name, including a number in Plymouth. You hear these things of, you know, well, this was someone, this was kind of like a hit squad in the group that was doing this. I don't don't, don't don't buy that. You know, when these things happen... They take advantage of it. Yeah, it, it, it takes on a life of its own, and you've got all these kind of conspiracies that are going around. And it's not to say that you know, that nothing like this ever happens. But the group doesn't have a history of this kind of stuff. To be honest with you, most of them, the ability to reason in depth, in really deep ways, a lot of it's gone from the average person in the group. So I don't know that that they would be able to plot something like that. We are not suggesting that the leadership of the 12 tribes had any involvement in these deaths. 
but the rumours have caused people who wanted to come forward and speak out to think twice. This may well have been what hobbled the Alexander County investigation in 2013. Witnesses began to back out. Others declined to press charges. The FBI offered to assist in keeping the case open, but the office declined, and so it was closed. Everything we investigated throughout the whole time we've been here, nothing was ever substantiated. You know, there's no evidence or anything. You know, the, the guy was held against his will. You know, we got on an interview him and he left. After we talked to him, they were like, he can leave any time. But nothing was ever, no charges that I can remember. You know, I, I know when the... First Sheriff Bowman out, says that in the nine years uh, since then, it's know, been pretty quiet in Hidden Night. I know we don't get any calls down there. I hear rumours about it being a bad place, but nothing that has been found to back that up. I'm not going to sit here and say it's a good place, and I'm not going to say it's a bad place. Like the women talk down to you because... Hiddenite locals have mixed feelings about the tribes. I've never ate there or anything at their restaurant just because of the women. Like, they just they just give me a, a bad vibe. But the men are really nice. But the men always come in in, like, groups, and then the women are always by themselves. Yeah, everybody's always like, oh, it's a cult, or they harm their, their men and their kids, or something. For kids, I think they work and they don't get paid. It's, for me, I don't know, they're just sometimes too friendly. Some people around here are, I don't even want to say scared, but worrisome, because there are so many of them, and they don't really communicate much. They'll wave at you, like if you're driving by. They're super friendly in the Yellow Deli. I've been there once or twice. But other than that, they kind of stay to themselves. So around here, and basically the middle of nowhere, uh, they just, people around here are scared of change. Just like um, people who've seen the quote-unquote scary articles asking if, like people that are not from around here asking if like they really are doing all that stuff or if they are scary or they try to intimidate you in any way. And I'm just like, I don't, I've never had to talk to them, so I don't know. I remember when that used to be trios, not the Yellow Deli, and, you know, the community was more, I guess you'd say tighter or whatever. Um, and then, you know, when the Yellow Deli bought it, yeah, it looked good. I mean, it looked, everything looked fine and so forth. But you just wait. You, nighttime Things have been said, dark things, like, you know, the children are being abused there. The man who owns it, uh, from what I understand, is a very mean man, you know. But all, again, this is all, I hate to say it's hearsay. I wish I could say that, you know, I've actually ran into them and spoke like you and I. But they're really, they don't talk that much. They're very hard to get to talk to, you know, especially the women. But there's definitely something occultic that's going on around here in this community because it's not the same since they've moved in. It is not the same. I remember when they first moved in, they tried to buy our house. It was my grandma when she was living there, when she was alive. And uh, she wouldn't give it to them. They wanted to buy up all these houses in this area because they wanted to make this their little community tribe, whatever. And people were trying to, you know, be against it, you know, tell people, warn people, don't sell your homes to them. You know, but I'm sure there's nice people in there. I mean, there's good and there's bad, but uh, it's dark. I, I won't eat from there. The women seem more submissive, I guess, and not in a not in a typical, like, marriage submissive, just in a, like, I have to absolutely do what this man tells me. We've even had one family that I know of in the community that actually joined up with them. I didn't know them personally, but they joined up with them and I think like they shipped them off because they never seem to leave the people. Like if you join in hit night, they're not going to leave you at hit night because they don't want you to get pulled back out or even have that chance. And it's, it's scary to think of everything that they've bought up because land around here, when you're vested with land, that's a, a big thing. You know, we own land and that's where we put our investments. And so that for them, for people to sell off home properties and things like that to some random people like the tribes, it's kind of strange. 
Our producer asked Chris Bowman, the Alexander County Sheriff, how they could have all that information from 2013, together with reams of other allegations made over the years, and simply close the case. There is allegations of any kind on anybody, any child. I can promise you that it would be investigated, uh, along with my office and, and probably SBI, because I have an SBI agent that works out of my office. So any major cases that comes up, we get them involved in. Just to ease some of the people's minds that we don't care or we don't want to investigate, you know, all that is untrue. I took an oath as sheriff 13 years ago, and I've been working with this office for 43 years. We, we treat everybody the same. Uh, I put my investigators up against any other agency, and I'm talking about the big agencies across the state. There's not a year that goes by that I don't get a call from a family that's concerned about typically, oh, someone who's 18 to 26 who is enamored with this group and is going to enter into the community. Rick Allen Ross is a cult expert and deprogrammer of 40 years. In 1996, he founded the Cult Education Institute in New Jersey and has helped the FBI and police investigate the 12 tribes. The bottom line becomes individual criminal acts. What has the group done that you can prove is a crime? It's not a crime to brainwash people. It's not a crime to uh, persuade people to abandon their family on the outside and become community members. It's not a crime to stop communicating with your family when they've been shunned or they've left or whatever. So a lot of the things that we think should be criminal, and and that is the emotional and psychological damage done by groups like 12 tribes, that's not criminal. So what you have to get them on is tax fraud, racketeering, labor violations, child physical abuse, medical neglect, and you have to be able to prove it. And in order to prove it, you have to corroborate it with eyewitnesses. And who are those eyewitnesses? Well, there are other members of the community, because this is a very tightly knit, very carefully controlled series of communities that 12 tribes includes. So if you're law enforcement and you're investigating and you're trying to corroborate something, it becomes very, very difficult. So you've got these ex-members that have seen terrible things and they tell the authorities, I saw this, I saw that. And the authorities then go and try to corroborate it with physical evidence, other eyewitness accounts, and they're stymied. Because the people in the group say, oh, that's an apostate. That is an apostate person who left our group. They're out to get us. They're very hateful. They are liars. In fact, they left the group because we knew that they weren't really, really a good person. They, they did things in the group. And, and I can get you witnesses for what they did. And the, the, it just becomes so convoluted. Who do you believe? It becomes he said, and then they said, and it goes back and forth. So what you need is something concrete. In January 2022, the tribes were back in the news when a fire allegedly broke out on their property in Boulder, Colorado. The ignition point is thought to have been in or around one of their sheds, which a passerby filmed on his phone. That's somebody's barn. Yeah. Isn't it? Yeah. It turned into the most destructive fire in Colorado's history. A fast-moving wildfire in Colorado has forced nearly 20,000 people to evacuate their homes. More than 1,000 homes burnt to the ground. Fire investigators have finished searching the 12 tribes property in Boulder County. They spent nearly a week in that area near Highway 93 and Marshall Road looking for the cause of the Marshall Fire. On Christmas Eve, just six days before the fire, someone called the county's non-emergency line to report open burning on 12 tribes property. It's going to be a uh, 
already burning trash on the north side of Foothills Boulevard. Uh, you can cancel all the units. We've got it. A fire is burning. They're not reporting it. Why are they not reporting it? I can tell you because they don't want people coming to their compound and they don't want people interfering in the control that they exercise over the community. The FBI is still investigating. Now, of course, as a religious scholar, as someone who decided to study religion, I, you know, I like religion, you know. Sociologist Susan Palmer doesn't have a high opinion of much of the media's reporting on the tribes, including mine. She says the tribes, which she describes as a new religion, is more complicated than it is often depicted. You know, if you if you actually get to know these people as individuals, you know, it's 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 really outrageous what the media is saying about them. It's I spent a lot of time studying them and hanging out with them and you know, I know a lot of them, and the people, the actual people in the group, many of them are, you know, very intelligent and sensitive, well-meaning people. And also I get the impression their children are very happy and, and healthy, and, you know, they're very bold. They sing, if you ask them to sing. They're very curious. They're kind of disobedient like most kids. In fact, you know, I took my kids to visit them because I couldn't find a babysitter, and my kids ran off in the woods with their kids. And when I was driving back, I said, hey, what did you do in, in the woods? And they said, oh, our friends dug up a treasure chest and we found chocolate and toy trucks and money. And it was really funny because I'd spent that afternoon interviewing all these elders about how they raised their kids. And they distinctly said, we don't let them have any money. We don't let them have any candy. We don't let them have toys. And, you know, that's how kids are raised in the outside world, and that's why they're so corrupt. And yet here are their kids who are quite disobedient. There's this kind of subculture. And my children were, like, doing more valuable research than I was. (laughs) It's certainly true that there were, and no doubt still are, plenty of good things about the 12 tribes. Some of the people we spoke to for this podcast told us that the tribes had given them a feeling of deep belonging and kinship, a sense that they were part of something special. Often they formed lifelong friendships and learned important lessons about themselves and others. I was being told every day that my purpose was to reflect God's love on this earth. And how I did that was by serving the people around me. So when you wake up and, and you have that at one at one minute with your your friends, with your teacher, with your parents, and you know that what you're doing that day is serving God, a higher purpose outside of yourself, and that you're showing God's love to the world and you're self-sacrificing. That that feeling of fulfillment it's stronger than any force that I can imagine. There's something that it does to the soul that is better than any drug that you can ever do. And I think that was really where I got sort of hooked. You know, I really got taken at that point because I really felt like I'd made friends. You know, there was a particular fellow who um, befriended me. You know, I really started sharing uh, sort of the innermost depths of my heart. And um, and he did the same. And it was, uh, I really found common ground. You know, we, we forged friendships through fire like that, you know with helping one another, especially the women. There is a lot of victims there, and I don't really even consider myself one of them compared to most everybody I know there. There's a lot of people that have had really bad stuff happen to them. People people that I love, people that I grew up with, people that I've been very close to. It was important to us that the 12 tribes have their say. We sent three pages of queries to the tribes in Hidden Night, but they never responded. Our producer also asked to interview the leadership there, but was told to address all inquiries to the community in Peppercorn Creek Farm in Australia. So we went and visited them. We working on a podcast about 12 tribes, and we were hoping to get an interview with you guys.
We were greeted warmly by a man in a bushy beard and workman's clothing, who proceeded to give us a little tour of the property. He told us there were about 60 people living on site. We then went back to the communal kitchen, where he offered us a cup of tea. Though cordial, we could tell he wasn't exactly thrilled to have a couple of journalists hanging around. He declined to take part in an interview, but told us to leave our details in case they changed their mind. That seems highly unlikely, because by the time we visited in 2022, the community and some of its members were the subject of a police investigation. So I was working in the community, in a community worker role. Remember Sarah from episode one? She's the woman who got in touch with me recently after a disturbing encounter with the tribes in the Blue Mountains. Sarah lives in a small community and she sees and hears a lot. And I got a lot of secrets. I got a hell of a lot of secrets. It was 2018 when Sarah first heard about a baby being buried illegally on one of the 12 tribes' local properties. And this particular one was someone who came to me and said, look, there's a woman that's given birth at the 12 tribes. And she said that the woman had given birth in the shed outside and that the baby, after it was born or during the birth, had died and they'd buried it in the back garden. She then remembered reading my story about Mark and Rose in the paper five years earlier and suspected that the talk of this burial was more than just gossip. And I thought, well, I'm going to ring Crime Stoppers and tell them about this baby. And I rang up from a public telephone box and... The woman was really quite snippy with me and, well, what proof do you have and how do you know this? And I, and I was, I just want, I said, look, I'm passing this over. This is really serious and this needs to be investigated. Sarah left the information with the woman, but no one called her back and she forgot all about it until one day in 2020 when she turned on the TV. With picks, shovels and machinery, long, thick grass is cleared as police dig for clues. They're searching for the bodies of babies. At Strike Force Nanagai was underway. And on a remote property at Bigger. been listening to Inside the Tribe, hosted by me, Tim Elliott. My co-writer and producer is Camille Bianchi, editing by Mark Wright of Term 6. This is a DM podcast production. We've also used some third-party TV and print material through the series, with details on those in the show notes. If you or anyone you know is affected by any of the subject matter raised in this episode, you can contact Lifeline for crisis support on 131114 if you're in Australia or the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline on 10273 TALK if you're in the US. Contact information for other services, including support to leave a high control group, can be found in the show notes.